This is CliffCentral.com. Should we be free to move across national borders as and when we please, without any restrictions? Or should states be free to decide who may and who may not enter their respective territories? How do we resolve the tension between these conflicting freedoms? On today's episode, Freedom versus Closed Borders. This show is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and hosted by Gwen Nguenya and Mark Oppenheimer. Now, to my mind, there are two different values at stake that we can think about immediately. The first being uh, a right to freedom of movement, the idea that citizens should be free to roam, to roam the earth and enjoy all of its cultural treasures and beautiful landscapes. And the other one would be a state's right to say, we're a certain kind of association and we have a right to preserve our membership and prevent people from intruding upon us. So given that we've got these two different freedoms clashing with each other, how do we resolve them when it comes to uh, immigration or with regards to refugees? Well, for me, like any right, I, I would think that you would want to start thinking about whether it's an unfettered uh, one or not and where the limitations of that particular right you know, start and end. Mm. And I, I would start from saying that I do think it is a reasonable limitation on freedom of movement to say that it extends so far as your, as your country or your, or your state. Well, isn't there something arbitrary about where you're born? So you didn't get to choose that you were going to be born in South Africa. True, but then you might also want to think that these border societies based off some kind of social contract that you as a citizen of that country are party to with that particular government. And the moment you cross outside it, you're no longer a party to the particular contract they've set up. And I, and I raise this particularly because it may not have application in areas where you say, well, we will not extend social benefits or other rights that come with being a citizen to merely because you happen to be on our, on this, on this particular piece of land, then perhaps I might be more amenable. But I think if we're tr- talking about true open borders, true freedom of movement people, you might want to think that then crossing a particular border doesn't change your, your status or your, or your benefits that you would have voting rights. You might have rights to any access that someone who is a citizen of that, of that, um, you know, area might have. So, well, let's, let's think about the subject of the social contract, right? So, you know, what's, what we pretend is that there was some actual agreement, right? So the citizens of a country, yes. you know, signed a piece of paper saying, I sign up to this. This is the, these are my rights in your constitution or in this piece of legislation. And by staying here, I agree to them. So what do we do with the situation where someone says, well, I don't. Um, I think that I'm being treated rather badly uh, in this society. And uh, I would like to not be a member of this contract, um, you know, associated with this contract. I want to go elsewhere. I want to sign a contract with another nation. And those other nations say, no. Uh, you know, we don't want your kind in our country. Then you, what do you want? A landless, you know, sort of citizenless? I think that's where you're talking about as a global order, perhaps it might be desirable to have. But if you're living in a system, and I suppose this is, this is the one point of departure where I'd say, open borders might be workable when you have an agreement that everyone follows, that they are all open borders. But I think the tension with having um, with borders comes because that's not the current world system. And so you're opening up your borders in an environment where externally there actually isn't this free movement of people. So you kind of want to think of movement of people as being multilateral. Some might leave this place to be another for whatever reason, and then some might come in. So there's this constant inflow and outflow. But in countries where we've seen tensions about immigration and 
open or closed borders is because there's been a unilateral direction of traffic. As we're saying that the conditions where we live are numerously better. There's something attractive about this area of land. And so we attract more people than would ever want to leave. And that accumulation of people in one place causes particular difficulties. And then to whom does a government have responsibility? To those who, as arbitrary as it may be, have a stake, have a legitimized right to this area, or do you confer the same privileges to those who, who come in? So you, you can imagine a, a situation where the state says, we'll accord you different rights. So you get visitor status. Um, yes. So you don't get to vote. Um, you We're going to tax you differently. Um, yes. But, you know, you're welcome to sort of reside here for certain periods of time. You know, countries do this with, with allocating work visas. Exactly. So, uh, you know, you're coming with a certain set of skills, which we need, um, and you're welcome to, to use those skills in our country for the next five exactly. years. Exactly, but it's these tensions that then start to give rise to more and more restrictions. Because, I mean, our starting point was, would we have this unfettered free movement, mm. or is there an argument for, for restrictions? And I think we can see how quite easily those arguments for some kind of restriction grow and grow. So you might start off with a restriction on just voting rights. But then because maybe there are limited or there's a scarcity of public resources, you then add on a limitation to public benefits. And then we might, you know, so increasingly we might find that there are not enough people in our current um, or in, in the labor market to absorb unschooled professionals. So in order to grow our economy and so for in order for newcomers to actually be of value and add value to our society, we're only going to allow in those who have a particular qualification. So very easily, and I'm sure it's how it happened over time, you have restriction upon restriction upon restriction to the point where you don't have closed borders in the sense that nobody's allowed in, but you certainly have closed borders in the sense that they're, they're, you know, borders are heavily patrolled and monitored and only people with who meet particular and exacting criteria are allowed to come in. So we might think that because in order to find any sense of legitimacy to restrictions on free movement, you've got to have these other values in place, the idea that you have an obligation to your citizens, uh, yeah. that you are some sort of club that can have, you know, yays and nays as to who gets to, you know, either join your club um, or visit. Mm. Um, you know, the, the problem with it, if you take the total um, free, you know, open borders policy, so there shall be no restrictions, it's very hard for you to say no to ISIS when they're knocking on your door. And they say, well, we, we believe that we should be free to disseminate our ideas um, in, in your country. Um, and, you know, you can say, but you seem like you'd be you know, likely to murder some of our citizens on the basis of their beliefs. So, yeah, but what about freedom of movement, man? Um, so you definitely want to draw some kind of balance and you want to do so in some principled manner. Yeah, but if I can just add something to the question that you're asking, I think still in asking it, you're kind of one foot in a sort of free, free, completely unfettered free movement and one leg in the idea of, of borders. Because the moment you're asking, if we have free movement of people, would we still allow it in ISIS? Who's we? That still assumes there are borders. In, a, yes. in a, an environment of completely no borders, that we becomes some kind of global, you know, structure like perhaps the United Nations or an EU but on a global scale. So, you know yeah, WU, a world union, etc. So there wouldn't be this idea of nation states. So an ISIS wouldn't be invading your country. It would be invading a particular part of your country because the whole world is now your country. Mm. That would be the the concept of a global citizen. So I don't think we can even 
think about threats um, in the same way when there, there's completely unfettered movement and think about which, you know, which area can we preserve or protect. The whole world would then be our turf in, in that sense. So you're right. There's this tension between what we could imagine the world being like. So we can yes. imagine this, a world where there are no states uh, and people come and go as they please um, and they're all global citizens. Um, or you can have the debate you know, inside the world that we inhabit, which is one of nation states. And I think that's the sort of more reasonable discussion to have, to say, let's just, well, we know we have nation states. What is it, what is fair for those nation states to do when it comes mm-hmm. to restricting other people's freedom of movement? Um, and to my mind, there's going to be at least two different categories of, of cases. So the one is when we say, uh, let's say you've got a refugee case. So you've got mm. Syrian crisis. You've got people that are being uh, executed in their homeland, um, are forced to flee, you know, for their survival and the survival of their families. You know, similar to what we've had, um, you think about before World War Two. you know, um, Jews who faced um, being put into, into ovens um, and were forced to flee um, and, you know, came, you know, spread themselves all among the world as refugees and started up new lives and some did very well. But you also had cases where states said no. We're only letting in a certain number of people. Um, boats were sent back from America, back to Nazi Germany, where people died. Um, yeah. And so that's that one sort of extreme case that you have, where you might think that a state's right to assert one of, well, what's good for my population economically or what's good for preserving our culture, that those rights then get trumped when you have very severe needs on the other end, when you've got you know life and death at stake. You know, so in the current Syria crisis, you know, it seems very cold-hearted for, for countries in Europe to say, well, we want to preserve our sense of ethnic identity, so we're not letting you in. But yeah. on the same token, you know, often what's, what's said is that they want to not preserve a sense of ethnic identity or cultural cohesion. What they want to preserve is the safety of their own citizens. Uh, and there's a concern that, you know, letting in refugees places their own citizens at risk. Um, now that's sort of an yeah. empirical question, I think. Um, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it's bringing in different types of, of, of questions. One are around national identity, one are around, um, of course, economic issues. And then what I would view is almost a slightly separate one is people who, you know, in a crisis situation. Mm. And I, I, for me, I would think the majority might be saying we can't have this open policy where absolutely any refugee seeking refuge can come in. But to say that in principle, we'd like to provide a place of safety for those who are fleeing some kind of you know, have whatever the definition is, distress in their in their home country. But that's not to say that they, there should be no limit on it, because obviously that now speaks to viability. And with our present resources, is it feasible for us to be able to continue to provide safety um, to, to this incoming group of people? Because the very reason why we are an attractive destination is because we have certain things to offer. Mm. At what point are we no longer able to offer those? At what point do we experience political instability because of having a huge portion of people that we cannot um, decently cater for. So I think the conversation lies along a feasibility spectrum. I think the initial question of a principled question, do you accept people who are fleeing a crisis, would be for most people an unequivocal, or at least should be from a freedom perspective, an unequivocal yes. But then you then enter into a numbers game. Or should you? Maybe the question should you answer a numbers game? Are those economic realities important to consider? I, I think they are. Because I think the very reasons that make you attractive in the first place, that make you a safe haven, start to crumble or erode when you, when you have unlimited access. Well, I would think at least in the case of Syria, you know, if I move to your country and a lot of, a lot of my, uh, 
a lot of refugees move to a particular country, they're not bringing the war with them. You know, they're not, you know, coming along with rocket launchers, destroying buildings. They're just, you know, there might be some sort of temporary economic drain. Uh, they might be costly. You've got to put up shelters. You've got to supply them with, with food. Um, but they're not, they're not coming along and, you know, uh, making a situation anywhere near analogous to what it's like in Syria. Um, we might think about. Well, is that an, is that a useful benchmark? Would, should we say, well, if they're not going to bring us the same level as a the country they're fleeing, then we mm. should allow them in? I'm not sure that would be an acceptable benchmark for your current citizens. Well, let's think about a, a hospital case, right? So we think the general principle is if you need treatment, you can come to hospital and you must pay for it. Okay. Um, but let's say you've been hit by a car. Okay. And your, your life hangs in the balance. Um, it would seem wrong to first ask whether you can pay for the hospital bed. What we should first do is treat you, um, you know, ensure that you're, that you survive. And then when it comes to your continuing care to say, well, okay, can you afford it? Um, you know, is, is your, your life's no longer in danger? You've been stabilized. You know, now at that point, you might think that the private hospital can justly refer you to a public hospital, you know. Um, yeah, but this is sometimes where an, an analogies are problematic because all the variables don't necessarily hold. I mean, if we are going to use a hospital analogy, I would say it's more analogous to the question of if we accept these people, a, a huge number of people who cannot pay, would we, in fact, as a hostel, no longer be able to exist? Yes. So the very reason, in order for us to exist as a place in which some people can get care is to make sure that we're financially viable. If we close down shop, then nobody can ever come to us and seek that same level of you know um care so You're that right. so that should be the consideration is how many people can we cater to who don't have to pay or who are in some kind of dire scenario but not so much in which it makes our entire enterprise no longer feasible yeah so as long as you do that undertaking in an honest manner so i think it's fair for a hospital to say look there is some upper limit you know that if we yeah. took only emergency cases um, and never received any money we would cease to exist and that would be to the detriment of everyone um but you might think that um, in the refugee case, states are being dishonest, uh, that they could absorb many more people than they do absorb, uh, and that really what they're saying is, you know, we're only willing to tolerate, you know, a pinprick of suffering, you know, to our own citizens. Exactly. Um, and this is, yeah, that's exactly where I think, you know, this this conversation is really one that veers towards the economics of it and what's economically possible. Mm. The dangerous argument is that one that veers more towards national identity. And these people do not, at least in, in, in my view, and you're welcome to disagree, but where people then say they don't, they don't share the same uh, values, etc., and therefore we cannot allow them in. I think that's a concern, but I don't think it would be the reason. So I think in that particular scenario, we need to devise ways in which we can integrate and help bring people, persuade them to our values. So, so it presents a challenge, and I can see to that, but I think it's one that can be overcome and should be overcome. We should never view ideas as settled, um, but rather that it's a continuous process of converting ever more people into a particular worldview. I mean, a newborn child that gets born to society, I'm sure, has to be inculcated into that society's values and etc. So I think it's a it's a process of societal renewal we should always be engaged in, whether it's people who are born there or who who come in. So is it fair for recipient states to demand assimilation? So if they say, if you want to come to France, you know, from Syria, okay, we have certain French secular values. Firstly, we expect you to learn our language. Uh, we'd prefer it if you stop speaking your language. Uh, and your, some of your customs are, are, you know, repugnant to us. So we're a secular society. Um, you can't wear a headscarf anymore. Um, 
You know, and if you agree to all of this stuff, you know, yeah. then you can have safe haven in our land. Is that fair for them to do? No, I don't think it's fair. I mean, I, 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 I say this as someone who has lived in a different country and, you know, where those exact conversations were, were, were very prevalent. And I, I, I disagree with assimilation when it comes to such specific details of people's, of people's lives. But I think you can perhaps establish very broad values, which may not be Country specific. Look, there may be other countries that share those values. It's not to say this is, and that's why I balk against the idea of a national identity. It's just based on certain values, principled values, ethical values that they have nothing to do with the nation as a, as a geographical location necessarily. So we might want to say in this area, we value life. This is not a British value or South African value. It's just a value that we think all humans of any location should abide by. If you do not, value life and you think murder is, is, is okay, then we do not want you to, to live in our society. So I think these values are not nation specific. I'm very against any sense of nationalism, but I think we can develop objective belief systems and value systems, which we can say anyone who wants to, to, to come, to come live here has to abide by. So I think, you know, nationalism is a, complicated thing right so we've seen you know you have these you know drives towards nationalism which can lead to you know uh you know we're the best nation and we're going to go and invade the neighboring nations because we're the best you know yes. so, and that sort of stuff we find very frightening but you might think that building up a national identity can be quite useful so you know there's an idea of a of an american melting pot you know so that america is welcomed as a history at least of welcoming people from all around the world um, but then saying that, you know, we, we'd like you to participate in an American culture with certain sets of beliefs that you will support, you know, our national um, sporting teams, that you'll wave an American flag, you know, that you'll care about the constitution. You have to do a citizenship test there where, you know, as a, as a foreigner, yes. in order to become part of America as a, as a true citizen, you have to start imbibing their values and sort of seeing yourself as part of this nation. Um, and that there's some value in that cohesion that you create from that, yeah. you know, that everyone yeah. sees themselves as part of the same team. I guess what I'm saying is in the specifics, it becomes very difficult to do. So when you say you will, you know, speak this particular language, et cetera, I don't think those, those characteristics necessarily gen generate a particular outcome. So you may very well support, um, a, you know, a sports team and take part in the national sport. You may then speak English, but then still decide that murder is okay. So for me, I've, I, I battle to see the correlation between these so-called nationalistic ideas to actually the broader values that we care about, which really are not nation-specific. And I think we can, whether you want to then say our shared values are those shared by, I don't know, a, a world's, you know, global system such as every country is part of the United Nations and there are some even international norms and say, well, you cannot join us if you are not, part, you know, from a country that does not agree to... Um, these particular values. Um, but I think the more specific you want to become about what those things are, what you dress, you know, what the food you eat, where you, where you congregate, where you go to worship, etc., those become very specific to the point of, um, I think, being quite draconian. Okay. So, so in your view, it's, it's fair to enforce some sort of universal norm. Uh, to say there are, there are certain values that all all human yes. beings ought to abide by. Exactly. If you're going to live in our country, you don't get to lie, cheat, and steal. Yes, you know. founded on ethics, but not nationality. Yeah. So again, there, there might be times when it's very useful to build up this national identity. So interesting, another interesting case for me would be a country like Israel, right? So mm -hmm. Israel doesn't exist as a nation before 1948, before it declares independence. Um, 
and it's sort of emerging out of a disaster case. So you've got the Holocaust, you've got people who are displaced all around the world, and they are saying, you know, regardless of the language that you speak or the country that you originally came from, you know, if you're Jewish, you get to come to this country and you get to help build it up. And, you know, one of the things that they, that they did in Israel was they resurrected a language as well. So Hebrew wasn't a spoken language before. Um, and Ben Gurion said, we're now going to have this new language, this new national identity. And you will shed your Hungarian identity or your German identity or your Russian identity and you'll become Israeli and you will speak Hebrew. Um, to the extent that they even, um, banned Yiddish books, um, on the grounds that they said, you're going to speak the new language. Um, and they took very hard measures, you know, taking that melting pot quite seriously where you would lose your prior identity in this new nation. And they did it in the circumstances where there was hostility towards the formation of Israel. So they're surrounded by a bunch of hostile Arab states, um, and it's important for them to see each other as part of, you know, one one nation, one organization. And partly, you might think, because of that, they're able to, you know, fend off attacks from their enemies. So that's, you know, um, you know, as soon as Israel declares independence, there's the war of independence. They're surrounded by hostile states, but they survive. Um, so actually, in the, in the question, you almost highlight why I would be opposed to that is. Because of that very reason that it creates an us and, and, and others and outsiders. And I think it fosters hostility as opposed to lessening, you know, tensions between countries, between groups of people, etc. And it leads to a majoritarianism that I think overall is, is not useful. The only place in, in my opinion where a national identity or any identity has any value is maybe in supporting a, a very brief competition where the start and end of that nationalism is very clearly defined. So so, you know, for 45 minutes, I'm going to be passionately South African, but thereafter, I'll quickly discard it as being as, as silly as the event that I've, you know, used it is. Yeah, this is a so very circumscribed um, scenarios where, you know, it's, it's done all in good fun, but nobody actually takes the enterprise of nationalism too earnestly and too seriously. So you're saying when it comes to supporting the South African rugby team, you're happy to wave your flag. And so, yes, exactly. You know, being South African is yes. important. But really, it's a pose that you adopt, you know, because it's part of the theater. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that nation building is complicated. I mean, South Africa is, again, an interesting example where you've got, you know, um, you know, a whole bunch of these phony Bantustan states. You've got a whole bunch of people that are divided on the grounds of, of ethnic identity. And in 94, we say, you know, we're going to meld together and we're going to be part of this rainbow nation. And there's also this tension of saying we can accept people's differences, but you're all united in one sort of national identity. But then you sort of see the dark side of that national identity coming up in 2008 with xenophobic violence and saying, well, we're South Africans, but you foreigners aren't, you know, and we can Which is exactly your why I think we should always have been united against a set of common values. And I think the Constitution is a perfect example of values that are not nation-specific. Mm. Anyone outside of South Africa could say, actually, those are a good set of ideals to live by and, you know, that's a good society to have. So that's, ex- that's exactly the point, is to coalesce around shared values, but not an idea of anything being unique about your country or situation at all. I mean, I'm not proudly South African. Um, I might be proud of particular values in South Africa that we, we uphold and we find esteemable, but that's that's basically the, the, the extent of it. And I think maybe before we, we really uh, conclude this conversation, um, as interesting as the, the conversation around national identity and those aspects are, um, I think an important resistance against opening up or the relaxing borders has been around those economic issues we, we we touched on in the beginning and specifically the idea that foreigners who come in and I touch on this because it's quite relevant for South Africa as well is that they somehow 
well, if you're going to be against it, they're stealing our jobs. There's a, there's a missing, which we didn't touch on um, a lot, is a opposition to globalization and how globalization is linked with um, the, the conversation around closed borders. So one, if you answer the fact that they're stealing perhaps local jobs or if you pro um, the, the movement, so they're actually doing jobs that locals would not otherwise otherwise do. Or beyond that, they're creating jobs. So, you know, if, if you come in as a foreigner, yes. um, you know, you need services. You need, you need a place to, to eat. You know, you need your haircut. Um, you know, you might start a business that yes. employs locals. Um, so, and especially if we say that the person who's likely to immigrate to your country is the kind of person who has perseverance, um, mm-hmm. going to be a good self-starter. Um, you know, America is sort of one of these nations built on, on foreigners. Um, and you had all these different people, you know, coming from rural around the world and building a great mm-hmm. nation. Um, and so foreigners are often a, an incredible way to, you know, for everyone to benefit. Yeah. Um, I suppose what I'm suggesting, and maybe we should actually have an entirely dedicated conversation on globalization, is that, you know, we've been quite in favor of, of, of open borders, I think, quite broadly in our conversation. But I'm thinking that there might be something about that grievance of, um, of, of of, of, of locals, people who feel the brunt of globalization as opposed to having benefited from it. And I, th- and I think a very easy, maybe, um, economic, you know, point to, to bear in mind is that people often say, well, they come in and do jobs where they do come in and do jobs, for example, car guards or plumbers, et cetera, that locals might not want to, want to do. So, well, actually, if you had closed borders and people weren't allowed to come in and be a, a car guard at a low price, it would actually make um, incentivize locals to do that that job because that job would become a lot more valuable. The only reason certain jobs are kept at a low wage is because we do allow people to come in and and fill those jobs where locals will not. Yeah, I suppose the underlying assumption is that there's the sort of these empty job slots that are yes. filled by people as opposed to you know an economy um, people, that grows, an economy that grows and shifts and you know takes into account different preferences. Yes. Um, but we've had a again, I think, a very fruitful discussion um, and looking at how it's a complicated question to try and resolve. That on on the one hand, you know, we think that people should have this some sense of free movement. On the other, that states, you know, have some power to restrict who can come in. That cases of emergency situations like refugees create greater, um, you know, greater Need, burdens yeah. on states, greater needs. Um, and that we want to look at the good that foreigners can, you know, can bring into countries by creating jobs and creating new opportunities. Thanks from me, Cecilia Koch from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, for joining us for this episode of Freedom Versus. We hope you found it thought-provoking. And thanks to Mtoba Chapi for the editing, visuals and graphics, and Greg Cohen for the audio. Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, Freedom Versus. That's two words, and Versus is spelled V-E-R-S-U-S. There, you can watch the discussions between Gwen and Mark. Our YouTube channel also features additional content. Enjoy! This is CliffCentral.com.